one, I believe. Uh, today on the show, Jesse Cole, owner of the Savannah Bananas uh, in New Zealand, always has Savannah Bananas, but the, the, the vowels are a little bit different. Uh, here on Dash Radio, Dash Talk X, appreciate the time introducing to the show the owner of the Savannah Bananas. Savannah Bananas, depends on where in the world you're from. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Jesse Cole. Welcome yeah. to the show, mate. Fired up to be with you, my friend. Very cool. Uh, I'll start with this one. You do you get sick of wearing the yellow tux every single day? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You know this is my uniform, and I know you obviously at snowboarding. And you know uh, when I played baseball, the reality is you have a practice. You know you have a practice outfit, and you have your game uniform. And when you put on your uniform, it's game time. And for me, yep. you know, inspired by PT Barnum, when I put this on, it means it's showtime. And so every time I'm doing a show, I'm putting on a show at the ballpark. I'm giving a speech. I'm rocking the yellow tux, and I love it. It's mega. Now, uh, for those who aren't uh, watching, uh, you your outfit is essentially a full-piece yellow tuxedo, and I think you've even got the website and stuff that goes along with it around around the yellow tux. Uh, why the yellow? How did the outfit come about? Give me the or- origin story of the yellow full-on tuxedo because it is loud. A long story short, when we first launched our baseball team, I realized to ask the question, what business are we in, but what business are we really in? And at one of the lowest levels of baseball, uh, I never wanted to be in the baseball business. We could never win that game. So we weren't going to play that. So we realized we could be all in in the entertainment business. And I read every book about P.T. Barnum, Walt Disney. And I said, well, if I'm running the show and on the field, our players are doing choreographed dances, we're having grandma beauty pageants, I'm pieing people in the stands, I can't be dressed like everyone else. And so I went and looked for a tuxedo. The first night it was a black one with tails like P.T. Barnum, but it was 100 degrees and I almost melted. And so I went on brightcoloredtuxedos.com, found a yellow tuxedo, had it shipped overnight, wore it the next day at the game, and everyone wanted to take pictures. It became the yellow tux guy. And now after I published my first book a few years ago, Find Your Yellow Tux, I believe everybody has something that makes them stand out. It's the best version of themselves. And I feel we should all amplify it. Maybe it's a yellow tux or maybe it's something else. And that's why I wear it every day. I get, I get it. I um, I have 20 of the identical same t-shirts. I wear the exact same thing every day. For me, it becomes, um, it's just been more around uh, just simplicity. It works. And, and when it's black, like, my t-shirt I'm wearing now, when I get old and fat, it's going to be a lot easier to, to hide and make it look a little bit slimmer. Yeah, so, still look part good. of my it's strategy. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I want to just maybe just jump onto that quick little segue. You said, um, you know, you can't win in the baseball game to win an experience. Do you actually think that the, the sport itself, which is the, the conduit to all of it, is actually the byproduct of what people are actually going for, story behind the story? So you made a conscious decision to make around the experience and everything. And obviously baseball is a part of it, but it feels like that the the energy and the vibe and the momentum isn't about necessarily the thing itself. What was your headspace around the strategy of going for the customer experience side of experience first with almost the, the sport as the byproduct? Because that's a pretty visual shift, which I, I don't think many other people in other sports have done, right? Actually embrace the bit that they're, um, to, to, to differentiate yourself. What was your headspace when you decided to kind of really focus on the experience part first? Yeah. I mean, everything for us starts at friction points for your customers, everything. And so when you look at the game of baseball to many, I would say 95% of people would say it's long, slow and boring. And so when we started our first team, I was a 23 year old GM 
uh, taking over the worst team in the country. I mean, we were failing 200, 200 people coming to the games, $268 in the bank account. And I met with people around the community and everyone said, ah, you know, our company doesn't like baseball games. Ah, you know what? Our, uh, our church doesn't like baseball. I heard it over and over and over again. And I asked why. And they said, because it's too long, too slow and too boring. And I realized that myself, if I played baseball, which I did, I enjoyed playing, but I couldn't stand watching a game. It was like watching paint dry, you know? So I said, that big friction point, if the game is too long, too slow, and too boring, what would be the exact opposite? And that mindset was, what if we turned it into a full-fledged circus and a baseball game might break out? And so we started testing this and trying it out with, you know, now we have a, you know, we have a senior citizen dance team called the Banana Nanas, a male cheerleading team called the Mananas. We have literally a break dancing first base coach. We have a full 20 piece pep band. There's constant circus energy and acts going on. And then there just happens to be a baseball game. And through many years of testing, we realized that's what people wanted. And it started with that big friction point. And that's where everything starts with us. We eliminate friction points to add a better experience. I was um, a great, great breakdown that Jesse, I, I got taken by the, uh, the Golden State Warriors uh, on site going through a bunch of media stuff and how they sort of ran it. And what I was really interested in is their spreadsheet, their Google spreadsheet run sheet for the times per second of the screens and the experience from within one game. Yeah. And you wouldn't, think about how much goes into it but everything is choreographed to the exact minute at this time out at this second this spots this way and i started looking at this run sheet i'm like wait a second this is one game but the entire thing is a hundred different touch points of experience which i never would have had the full understanding of so when it comes down to reimagining what baseball sort of is when you talk about these 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 friction pain points did you literally break down and reverse engineer what the game is, where the opportunities were, what things could go in there. Like how's your, what's your methodology for testing um, experience within within the, a, a single game of baseball? How have you sort of worked that out? Well, the first thing you got to put yourself in your customer's shoes and everyone says, put yourself in the customer's shoes. My question would be, do you actually do that? So for instance, mm-hmm. for us, everyone on our staff goes undercover, undercover fan. And so we literally park with the fans, we walk in with the fans, we sit with the fans, we eat with the fans, and we take pages of notes. And we've been doing this for years. I bet you we have 100 pages of notes. And we write down every friction point, every point that we're bored during a game. And then we try to defeat that boredom. You know, the big thing, we're trying to make baseball fun. So we look at when you're parking, what, what's happening in the parking experience. When you're walking in, what's happening on that experience. Even our bathrooms, our biggest rival is the Macon Bacon, so we have making bacon urinal cakes in all of the men's urinals. So our fans are literally peeing on our rival to make it more fun. And so we attack that. And, you know, one of the biggest areas we did, and one thing that no one else is doing, every single ticket at our ballpark is all inclusive. Includes all your burgers, your hot dogs, your chicken sandwiches, your soda, your water, your popcorn, your dessert. Because I don't think anybody in the world wants to be nickel and dimed at a ballpark. So we eliminated that friction point, put it all into a ticket, including your parking, including everything for $18 total and said, this is a better experience. And that's one of the big thing that's helped us sell out every single game. So just for, you're saying $18, you can basically eat and drink as much as you want. And that includes your ticket and your parking and everything else. Yes. Huh. Very interesting. The blueprint of what you've created, have other sports teams come to you to try and think about has the data of the research that you've done from customer experience been licensed out the intel that you've actually created from this almost seems like a blueprint copy paste to white label to 
a million different sports all over the world, regardless what, because you've done you, there's some type of methodology or, or 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 method to the madness. Talk me through the 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 potential business or future opportunities of what's become of the data and the insights that you've actually learned from just the Savannah Bananas. Yeah, well, it's been hard, and I think we've had teams come to us, but um, I always say this: you know, are you willing to get through the suck? And, and, and it's going to suck in the beginning. And the reality is that first night we did All You Can Eat in 2016, um, our fans went through 10,000 pieces of meat in the first hour. And the lines <laughs> were staggering. I mean, we had to create the, the worst experience first to create the best experience later. And not many people or teams are willing to get through the worst experience. Because when you do something that's never been done before, that's real innovation. And so... Um, I think sports teams are a little hesitant to go into it. I mean, it's breaking the rules. I mean, how many teams have a breakdancing first base coach that's doing the single ladies dance into the Carlton, into the moonwalk while giving signs? That's breaking the rules. We had to do it first and see, could it actually work? And I think it comes down to our teams willing to experiment enough, teams, businesses, et cetera. And so we, we build everything by experimentation. You mentioned the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, we have 250 promotions right now that we mix into a nine inning game on every other game. And we're literally, what we're doing is every game we add one to three promotions we've never done before in front of a live audience. And I'll tell you, two out of three of those fail miserably. I mean, it's embarrassing, but we usually get one hit a week and that builds some more favorites. And so it's a constant experimentation inventing on behalf of our fans. That's really helped us get to where we are. Do, what's the, process of figuring out what to try and not try is there a spreadsheet of something that sits somewhere with a million things is it is it color coded with this could be shit this could be great let's give this a try what was the feedback how what is your process for 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 testing new customer experience yeah so like i'll give you an example in, in regards to um promotions on the field and what we do we we have five stages so we have our parking lot our front plaza our concourse all of our seats and our grandstands and our field and so we're constantly testing on each one of those stages. But when we're doing something on the field, that's the main promotion that everyone at the stadium sees, we always ask ourselves, how are we trying to make them feel with this promotion? And we have different things. So basically it's based on, um, we have some ooh and ah promotions. For instance, our players go into the crowd and drop down to a knee and deliver a rose to a little girl, all right? We do our anniversaries where we honor people like at a wedding that have been married for 30, 40, 50 years. We have our fans go on dates with fans. They grab a grandma and actually have a date and our sexy saxophone serenades them. Those are the ooh and ah, the cute, the special moments where we salute the troops and we have all military rise and we honor them in front of the crowd. And then we have the fun promotions. And what we always ask is, what is the button? So, you know, every team does a dizzy bat. The button is when they fall. What is the button on our promotions? Is someone going to get pied in the face? You know, is someone going to put on a diaper and put talcum baby powder all over them? You know, what are they going to act like animals? Are they going to act like kids? What is that button that makes people laugh? So if we have a promotion that there's no button to create a certain feeling for someone, we probably won't test it. We have to at least think there will be some button. So that's kind of a realm on how we've realized we've done so many of them. If it's just like, oh, well, we'll see what happens. Well, we need to kind of think about what's going to happen from that. Clearly, you are the the big main driver behind this you're the, you're the face you're the owner you're the glue um how how do you go around thinking of creating a moment to a movement and then a movement to a machine love it 
I love your, I love the alliteration there first. Um, simplicity and intentionality. So let's, if you talk to anybody on our team, the name of our company is Fans First Entertainment. We own the Savannah Bananas, but the name is Fans First Entertainment. Our mission is Fans First Entertain Always. Every decision we make, is it Fans First? When we have meetings, we've learned this from Amazon, Starbucks, we have an empty chair and that represents a fan. Would a fan like that decision? So we talk about this over and over again, and we read our fans first vision at every staff chat, and we talk about our fans first core beliefs at every single meeting. Because we're repeating this over and over again, when anyone has to make a decision, we say, all right, is that fans first? Is that geared toward entertainment? And so like that is our guideline that makes it pretty simple for us. And we will never question someone if they were making a decision that we think was best for the fans. So give you an example. This past year, uh, this time last year in November, our merchandise director said, you know what? It's not fans first that a t-shirt that's $24 online, you pay $30.50 because you pay for shipping. And I go, yeah, you're, you're right. That's not, she goes, what do you suggest? I go, I go, well, we need to eliminate all shipping. And I go, I go like Amazon. And she goes, well, no, we're not gonna charge them anything. And I go, Okay. And I go, well, how much was our shipping last year? And she went through the numbers and it was thousands of dollars. We do a lot of merch all over the world. We're fortunate. And she's like, but it's only a few percentage points. What happens if people buy more? Is it more fans first? Will we create more fans? And we made the decision and I, we might be the only sports team in the world that it's not if you buy a certain amount of merchandise, it is free shipping always. She made that decision because it's fans first. And I'll tell you, our merch this past year went up over 30%. And so uh, that decision, yeah, it's a new ball game. We celebrate that. The same decision, we eliminated all advertisements from our stadium. We're the only ad-free ballpark in the world. We're the, we're the dumbest company that would literally two weeks before the pandemic say, hey, let's throw away hundreds of thousands of dollars right before the pandemic. At the end of February, we announced this. But we realized that no one comes to our ballpark and wants to be sold, marketed to, or advertised to. If you go to the Warriors arena and you – or Oracle Arena, and you're sitting there, you don't want to hear ad ever ad after, you know, car dealership, dentist, you don't want to hear that. But teams do it because that's how they make money. Well, what if you don't have to make money that way? What if you can get creative? And we made that decision. And it was the right decision. But we're playing the long game, not the short game. That's the difference. Very interesting question around putting that that fan first. I know, um, you know, Google has a thing whenever they talk about partnerships or potential acquisitions, it's, you know, the toothbrush test, what I use it two times a day. Yes. Regardless, regardless, whatever the product thing is, it's it, that's their toothbrush test of, you know, would that pass the toothbrush test of this widget for a thing? Yeah. If it's a yes, sweet. Okay, that makes sense. So yeah. clearly you've got that with what would the fan do, put in the chair there, you know, it, it kind of, it, it brings it up. So you're talking about, you know, playing the long game. I get, I totally get that, 100% agree. When you are doing so much experimentation with the fans and they know that this is an experience like no other, how much of a buy-in do they, like everyone gives you a lot more leeway if they know your intent is right. They give you leeway on if stuff fails, they give you leeway if it's not as, as tight and polished, but you're doing it with them, not um, almost like to them or for them, but you're doing it with them. How's the experience of the fan yeah. interacting with the brand as you test and, and adapt and almost like evolve that experience together. Talk me through that. Yeah. You know, at first it was tough because we had no trust and we didn't build it and I haven't shared, but you know, the first three months we came to Savannah, we only sold two total tickets. And in January of 2016, we got a phone call that we overdrafted our account. Um, we were out of money 
And I remember driving home from my wife, with my wife and Emily said, Jesse, we have no other options. We have to sell our house. And so less than five years ago, we sold our house, our dream house. We emptied out our savings account. We put the little money that we had into the team and we were sleeping on an airbed for over a year trying to make ends meet. And at first, no one in Savannah knew who we were. We hadn't built that trust. We hadn't shown them that we'll do anything for the fans. So we had to create that attention. And that's why we named the team the Bananas and the Senior Citizen Dance Team and all that from there. Now it's interesting. Um, and it's dangerous because they're giving us maybe more permission to try things crazily because we have failed a good amount over the last six months. And we had a terrible failure only a couple of weeks ago. We decided to do a game in November. And that's part of our vision. Again, the question is most teams are irrelevant for most of the year. They're not playing. So we question, why do we have to be irrelevant? Why can't we play year round? So we came up with the idea to have a game in November, November 13th. We call it Fansgiving. All right. We didn't know who was going to play. We figured out we'd find players. We're going to do the Bananas versus the Pilgrims. We're going to develop this Pilgrim team. We were going to have the first rock. You throw out the Plymouth Rock and call it the first rock. We came up with all these ridiculous ideas. The dumbest idea we came up with was we were going to starve our fans for 66 minutes in honor of the 66-day journey that the pilgrims made to our country and, and as a tribute to Thanksgiving. So we announced this. The game sold out, socially distanced, in one day, 24 hours. It was sold out, 2,000 tickets. The fans lined up early. People were flying in for the game. We decided to throw out rations. So we're like, time for rations. Here's bread. Here's corn. You know, we were throwing out rations. It was silly. And at 6.51, 66 minutes after the gates opened, we'd had the joyous feast. So no one had ate really any food. Our concessions was not ready. We tried to bring out food with our ushers. It was a disaster. The lines almost went all the way around the field. People couldn't eat at all. I had, I shared it on LinkedIn last week. One fan said it was a cluster. <laughs> I mean, really just ripping us apart. But then what happened was all other fans started defending us. But it was so much fun. But here's what they did. Here's what they did. And all these fans defended us without even us having to jump in. And we made a bad mistake. We won't ever make it again. But they gave us the willingness because over five years, we've built the brand and say, we will do what we can, but we're going to try things that may be silly and stupid and may not work. Hmm. When they give you leeway because you buy into the brand or the business, it's something very interesting that I, I, I think about this um, kind of comparison between Tiger Woods and John Daly. And I've said this a couple of times of, you know, if you heard a, um, you know, a story in the newspaper, it was like professional golfer caught in Las Vegas, drunk gambling with hookers and a bunch of blow and whatever, you'd be like, oh, that's super bad. But then if you say John Daly, you're like, oh, of course, it's like a Tuesday. And what, the, but the lesson in that I thought was pretty interesting, which I'm, I'm sure you could probably relate to, when the perception of the brand is so loose and crazy and out there and different and and challenging and, and just loose, everyone expects that as the normal. So if you were, play it by the books and square, if the New York Yankees tried to do any one of your different things, it would be flipping World War III, I'm sure. But because it's you and the brand and the way you've curated this experience and the, those bonds that exist within the community, they give you so much more leeway. They expect you to come out and being crazy and doing nut stuff. They expect, you know, I think you've kind of got the game rigged because if it goes failure because you're so transparent with it, they know that you're trying. And if it goes great, it's, it was to be expected. So there's something, you know, I think your, your point before, Jesse was right. If you can get through the suck first. Yes. 
then you get a, a bunch of longer tail upside. When you look at the, you, you brought up something before, just which I thought was interesting around the no advertising in the space in the in the stadium. Now, I can't name a single other sporting location in the top of my head anyway that. Uh, doesn't have some type of advertising on it because it ex- accounts for a significant amount of review. Um, and obviously when you get to TV rights with what things are placed and where for an average sport team, what, what's the percentage of makeup with where their finances come from in terms of tickets, merch, um, food and Bev advertising the whole thing. What does an average sport team look like compared to yours? So the majority of sports teams you look at probably 40 to 50% is actual sponsorship. I was actually on the call with a a minor league team last week and they said 70% of their revenue is sponsorship. Here's the difference for us. It was only 10% of our total revenue. And, and so it was less of a risk in the world. That's a huge risk outside in the industry, but for us it was only 10% because we've been fortunate. Every single game sells out. We have a wait list for tickets in the thousands and our merchandise brand has skyrocketed. So we could make that bet without actually betting the company. And it was an easier bet for us to make. And again, the whole mindset is you look at, I mean, did you see The Social Dilemma uh, on Netflix? Fascinating and scary all at one. We, on all of social media, are the product that they're selling to advertisers. We are the product. I don't believe that with us. I believe our product is our entertainment. It's the fun that we provide. It's how we make people laugh and dance and sing. That is our product. I want to put 100% of our energy into that, not put half of it into trying to make sure our advertisers get everything they need from our fans. I and our team work for our fans. So it made it clear on a brand stance. It's not right for 99% of teams. For us, it makes sense. Well, it, it becomes that thing of if, if the fans that turn up, if the fan is the product, then they're being exploited by then saying, here is the logo in front of you, here is the brand. I totally understand when I, I, I get that, uh, the correlation between this, the social dilemma talking about that, that, that exact thing. So you don't, you see it as more empowering, empowerment of the fans within for escapism instead of exploitation from the eyeballs getting sold on a per thousand basis for a logo that sits in the corner. And I'm sure... And I'm imagining the feedback is they feel that they're not being sold to or exploited, right? Like they obviously must feel that energy. Well, who does Netflix work for? Who does Amazon work for? And then who does YouTube work for? Mm. And so there's a difference there. On every YouTube, there's a pre-roll and no one gets excited for, oh, I can't wait to see this next pre-roll. So it just, it, it splits your, your focus. And I think, you know, as you know, which you've been so successful in what you've done, is your focus is huge. And all of a sudden, if your focus is split, I mean, does it really say what, what matters most to us as a brand on who we are? If a sponsor is saying, here's $50,000, $100,000, we just want you to do ads throughout the game, most people will take that dollars. But no, we work for our fans. So again, it's not for everyone, but it, it makes us true to who we are. And what was interesting, when we made that announcement, Fans were reaching out from all the world and said, hey, I'm buying this hat because I support who you guys are and what you're doing. And I was like, we're here to build fans and drive fans. We're not here to build sponsorship revenue. And so when we went to our sponsors and told them that they weren't happy and it was very tough. And I think a lot of times, as Jeff Bezos says, you need to be willing to be misunderstood at first. And I think a lot of the things we do, we are misunderstood, but we're not playing the short term quarter game. You know, we're playing the next five, 10 quarter century game. And I think that's when we look back and we'll think it's worth it. Now, the league that you're in, 
how many of the other competitors have fans from around the globe hitting up their website to try and buy their merch? I'm imagining zero. We're very fortunate. So, but to that point, you've probably got fans which you may have never come to a game, which have just seen what it looks like from afar to buy into that energy and that feel, right? A hundred percent. We announced a one city world tour a month ago that we were taking the show on the road. And we heard over a thousand nominations, 15 different countries, 300 cities of people saying, bring the bananas to, I'm like, we can't go to Australia right now. We can't go to UK right now, maybe in 2030. But to hear that because they've been following along with the brand means more than anything. It's like, wow, because we weren't trying to sell them. We were just trying to build something special for them. And it's a different, different conversation. The, uh, For a customer that hasn't experienced a game, they've clearly engaged through content that's existed on social. They've clearly, it, it, this is clearly a content player that's sort of extrapolated out the value of the brand and the, the buy-in for all this sort of community. When you decided to make the pivot to go down this route and use kind of content as the ammunition to scale the context of what you're about and, and sort of your messaging, talk me through your headspace when it came around the content strategy of what the Savannah Bananas would do how you would navigate the crazy world that is social media and just a bit of your top line thinking, because I can, I think it's, it's really intriguing to see that much glue and connection for a sports team in a country, which some others have never probably been to the country, never been to the state, never been to the field, never seen it. Maybe they don't even watch other baseball, but then they're solely into you. So, so how have you gone from local to global uh, scaled through content? Talk me through that. And we stumbled across this. You know, with anything, you start doing and then you start learning. You know, everyone puts a whole business plan, strategy plan. We had no plan for content. We just started doing it. was like, wow, this actually works. Um, for us, you know, again, it, it often starts with whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. When we were doing normal things, when we first came to Savannah, normal marketing, normal social media, normal sales strategies, we got not even normal results. We got worse than normal results. We sold two tickets. And so we realized that attention beats marketing 1,000% of the time. So how do you create attention? You have to think outside the box to do things that's not normal in your industry. You need to challenge the rules of your industry. So when you think, I wrote, I'll, play this, I'll play this with you right now. When you think of a sports team, what do you think of content they put out? Like a baseball team, what do they show typically? Uh, well, and Mark, I don't know. I don't follow baseball too much, but yeah. I'm imagining uh, – just a 30 second high impact montage, some slow-mo stuff, kind yeah. of copy paste with a yeah. logo I'm imagining or a TVC yeah. that's cut down for YouTube. A hundred percent. It's baseball highlights. So when we yes. first started in 2016, that season, we had an intern who was like, Hey, I can do some videos if you want. I go, cool, but I don't want to do highlight videos. And all of a sudden the song came out by Justin Timberlake, uh, Can't Stop uh, the Feeling. And we the said- troll, The Trolls. Yes, the trolls. And we said, well, what if we did a music video, but called it Can't Stop the Peeling? And so for the bananas. And so we actually, I said, Ben, intern, he's 21 years old. I said, let's film all the guys dancing, lip syncing, and just put this music video out. And I'll never forget, we put it out in the middle of July at eight in the morning, and I was refreshing. 10,000 more views, 10,000 more views, 10,000 more views. And people were just spreading it. And, and I, re I didn't realize it at the time, but Baseball players don't do music videos. They do highlight videos. And all of a sudden, when we saw that, they were like, fans started saying, when's the next video? And then we started doing parody videos. And we started doing acting scenes like Dodge Banana 
and we started doing the, the mighty, mighty uh, bananas instead of mighty ducks. Started doing uh, Titanic scenes, love scenes, which made no sense. We did Old Town Road. We brought a horse into the stadium and actually did that. And we started showing our players having fun. And on our website, it's simple, we make baseball fun. So as we started doing that, and we started getting hundreds of thousands of views. We were like, this is hitting something for fans because it's not seeing the same things they see always and over. And then this past summer, we launched our TikTok. And all of a sudden, we passed every major league team for followers, you know, coming up to 300,000 followers because we we're showing the players dance, do lip syncing, trending the players who are supposed to be playing baseball, doing fun things, going up to bat with a banana in their back pocket. I mean, just doing things during games you wouldn't normally see. And so challenge the rules of what everyone else does in your industry. That's how our content strategy has really pushed itself. And we've hired full time. We got two videographers. We got 300 digital people. We got one person solely on TikTok. And so that's different because most teams are like, show the highlights, show how the players do. We're like, no, let's show them having fun. And that's really helped us. And the content itself the, with the players, what's the split between players in the, the league that feel of themselves as I'm a professional athlete versus I'm an actor that's part of the show? How is the maybe maybe from a let's talk about baseball for a second? Do the actors like yo? I'm trying to be the next flipping Derek Jeter, and here I am with a flipping banana in my pocket. What the fuck? Like, how have the players uh, realized that it's actually not about them, even though it is? I uh, share stories. So for us, at first, yeah, I, me- I remember our first practice with our first team back in Gastonia, North Carolina, in 2000, shoot seven, 2008. And uh, I said, guys, before we practice, we're going to learn how to dance. And I brought a a dance instructor from a local dance studio. And the guys were like, what are you talking about? And a few guys said, I'm not going to do this. I'm out of here. And they went to the bullpen and and we're going to do it. But what happened is the guys that were dancing, they became fan favorites. The, the, The fans just started loving them. They were signing more autographs. They were popular. Everyone wanted pictures with them. And so all the other players started getting jealous. And then now as we built what we built in the Savannah, they're like, I want to be on the TikTok. I want to be on the Bananas Facebook. And so we built that because of the recognition. And what happens is we're very intentional. Before a game, all the players are out greeting the fans. And after the game, we have every single player in the front plaza. We have our pet band playing music. We have a free s'more station. And every player, including our breakdancing coach, are out greeting the fans. What do you think the fans are saying to them? It's not great double in the fourth inning. It's, oh, man, I love the dance you guys did in the fifth inning. Oh, man, that was so cool how you guys did that. I saw you on TikTok the other day. It's a constant feedback loop that I think if you want anyone to be successful, what are you recognizing? And we're recognizing the fans first attitude, the fun things they're doing, not necessarily how to do well on the baseball field. And the crazy thing is, as much fun as they have, they play better on the baseball field. We've won more games than any team in the league over the last five years. We had a professor come in from Georgia Southern studying, and we're the only team with a correlation that you play better because of the culture, the atmosphere, and the fun by putting on a bananas uniform. He found that in a study studying all players. So we're all in on the fun and the culture, and that turns into better performance, et cetera. It's a – but you had to weather a lot of suck first. (laughs) Yes. is, is wifey now stoked that clearly you're not on an air mattress anymore? How has the redemption tour gone financially in terms of making sure uh, you're taking care of yourself? Wifey's not got you on the couch still? You, you're surviving? I'm so fortunate that I'm still married to uh, my amazing wife. Emily. We have a two and a half year old Maverick uh, 
that people send him yellow tuxes, but I'm like, no, you need to send him a green tuxedo because he's not quite ripe yet. But we'll we'll get that figured out soon. But uh, yeah, we've been we've been very fortunate. Five years ago, we went from zero debt to 1.8 million dollars in debt, um, and this is right when we got married. And uh, we've eliminated all that debt. And we've built a very profitable organization. And even after uh, COVID, with all the limitations, you know, we were still profitable. And uh, I give it 100% credit to uh, our team and our fans for just understanding, hey, we're going to get through these challenges. But we really, every decision we make is for you. And I think that's for our people and for our fans. We say, love your customers or your fans more than you love your product. But love your people, love your teammates even more than you love your customers. And we live by those laws. And so I think our team knows it and uh, they've been all in on trying to deliver this experience. But surely, let's rewind back, you're 1.8 in debt. You've got, you know, no one's approached a sport business the way you have. No one's in your lane that's done it before. It hasn't capitalized yet. You're the one that's seen that's the crazy dude in the flipping yellow suit trying to do some crazy shit. At what point, was there an inner circle around you telling it that was that this was the right strategy or was it literally just you felt it in your, in your bones and you're like, stuff it, we're doing this to death because I know that this is right. That, rewind to that moment. What was your headspace at to see the vision of what you felt it could be? Well, I, at first I appreciate the, the credit in saying that we've, we're one of the first ones to do it. But the reality is Bill Vec, the famous baseball owner in the 60s and 70s, Charlie Finley, Mike Vec, there's a lot of guys who've been able to do a lot of this. The reality is Major League Baseball uh, pushes the tradition on you so much that there's too much red tape to go as far as we got it. Um, so there are a lot of great people that have done this. Um, in regards to us, I think it started with small bets. And while it looks at a lot of big bets, I mean, Robert, we, we just invented a brand new game called Banana Ball, which is a whole other thing we played in front of fans. I mean, we're pushing the limits of what we can do. Um, but before that, 10 years with our first team in Gastonia, we did small bets. We tested the players dancing in front of fans. We tested grandma beauty pageants. We tested the world's largest pillow fight. We tested salute to underwear night. We tested flatulence fun night. We tested all of these ridiculous things for years in front of a smaller audience as many people in the industry would say, the minimum viable product. You know, mm. Gaston only had 200 fans coming to the game. So we built it up to 1,000, built it up to 2,000, we tested. So we went to the bigger market in Savannah. We said, we're going to go all in. We just didn't know the first six months, the nine months, no one would believe us at first because they had baseball there for 90 years, professional baseball that failed. And so we had to really go the other way, the other direction and get them in that ballpark to see that we were different. And once they came in, then they did all this. And now we spend $0 marketing because we spend everything on the experience. Got you. And the, and how does that scale? Like in terms of an average game, your space, what does the logistics look like in terms of the, the league season with what, what moves, how you move around, how many people in the stadiums, the whole thing? Like talk me through some of the numbers of how the actual team operates in 2020. Sure. Yeah. So pre-COVID uh, stadiums, uh, 1926 stadium, Gracie Stadium. FDR gave a presidential address there in 1933. Babe Ruth played there. Hank Aaron, ton of history, beautiful ballpark. Um, 4,000 seats. And so we were over capacity every single night. We sold out every game. Uh, about 4,100, 4,200 averaged at the ballpark, uh, standing room only, um, waitlist for tickets in the thousands. This past year, we had to cut capacity in half for social distancing. Um, so we, in essence, had to turn away 50,000 people that already bought tickets. We had to call them and say, sorry, we can't take care of you. Luckily, our fan base came together and they all said they would cut their tickets in half. So everyone who had bought tickets would get a chance to come, which was really, really nice. Um, with that, uh, we're still operating in that half 
capacity right now with goals for the spring and summer to bump up. But yeah, we play 30 games during the summer. And the big question we're asking ourselves now in our five-year vision is how do we play year round? And so we just had a game in November. We're taking the show on the road. We're going to a different city. Uh, we're going to Mobile, Alabama uh, in, uh, in um, March. And we're going to expand that. So there's a point that our goal is to never be irrelevant and to play year round and to make that 40, 50, 60, 70, maybe 100 plus games in different parts all over the country and then expand that. Because we believe the show is something so unique, something different. You know, P.T. Barnum's, his, his uh, circus shut down after 146 years. Um, I'd love to kind of carry that into the baseball circus and get that back going. Mm-hmm. That's, that's our goal in, in the next uh, few years. So you're not just breaking the the mold of what the um, what a team does. You're trying to change the actual sport itself with actually having the right to have a seat at the table, to have one vote of many. You're just saying, stuff it. We're just going to do our own thing and just build that out. Now, now explain to me Banana Ball. You said it before. Yes. Is that a new v- version of baseball or what, what, what is Banana Ball? Yeah. So again, attacking the friction points of the game. First, it's too long, it's too slow, it's too boring. You get nickel and dime. You get advertised too. We can keep knocking down those friction points. But I compare what we do a lot to a hot dog stand. And we are very good at the condiments. The mustard, the relish, the ketchup are the promotions, the fun, the singing, the dance, and the characters. But the hot dog still needs work. The hot dog is baseball. It's still too long of a game. And we realize this by, you ask about data in the beginning here. We don't do tons of surveys. But I'll tell you one survey that I do internally every night is I watch when fans leave a ballpark. And you tell me this, pre-COVID, the last time you went to a concert, an event, a comedy show, and you said, oh, this is great. I'm going to leave in the middle. You don't leave in the middle of a great show or a great movie. Yet in baseball, fans leave constantly. So I said, there's a problem. When are they leaving? So I started keeping track and we had videos going. Fans were leaving about two hours in every single game. So I said, well, what if we made two hour the most action packed baseball game we could? What if we eliminated all the things that are boring in a baseball game and made them fun? And so two years ago, we started testing this with just players. And this past summer, we tested in front of fans. Even last Friday, we played it in front of fans. We've done it four times now. The response has been gangbusters. So it's a regular baseball game, except we did a few different rules. Do you want me to share some of the rules? No, 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 because my brain's going to, if you got before you delve the great IP, which I'm sure you have on lock, is if you've got the the momentum to go year round, you've got the brand, you've got the fun, you've got the noise, you've got the take the show on the road circus and you've got new rules. And if you reinvent baseball 2.0 and you own the entire ecosystem, it feels like you're about to have even more good problems. So I'm really intrigued to, to go in of how you're going to fix, fix the hot dog. So yeah. go for it, Jesse. All right. intrigued. And we've already started realizing those problems. So we're ahead of the game now. Um, so long story short, we said, all right, um, let's make every inning count. So how do we make every inning count? So we said, all right, if you win the inning, you get a point. First team to five points wins. So very simple in baseball. The visiting team does not score in the first inning, but the home team scores. The inning is over, one nothing. So you're creating a walk-off type experience, which is very, very fun. First team to five wins. Two-hour time limit. Batters cannot step out at all. If they step out, it's a strike. All right? There's no mound visits. You can steal first. So at any pitch, in any count, if the ball gets away from the catcher, the hitter can just take off to first. It adds a level of excitement. Going with the friction points, here's another one. Walks are the most boring part of baseball. All right, here, fourth ball, take your base, walk. I mean, how can a sport have something called actually walk? Like, when you think about that, this is called a walk. Like, that's the most boring. It should never be a sport. Anyways, we turned it into a sprint. 
And what happens on the fourth ball, the umpire goes sprint and the hitter takes off and the catcher has to throw it to every single position player on the field before the ball is live. So the hitter's either getting a double or a triple. It's penalizing the pitcher for not throwing strikes and it's making it an exciting play for all the fans to watch. Now I'll get to that. That's an area we need to work on. Um, well, a few other, uh, no bunting. Bunting sucks. If you bunt, you're thrown out of the game. Simple as that. All right. And uh, if a fan catches the foul ball, it's an out. So fans now are bringing their gloves. So if a foul ball going, fans are trying to catch it because they become a part of the game. So I imagine a situation at the end of a game, a fan caught this pop-up from the visiting team and they're getting interviewed on the field live on our TV because they saved the game for the team involving the fans. Again, what is fans first? And then the final thing is extra innings in baseball. All right, hey, we're in extra innings. We're just gonna keep playing. Like no one wants that. They want to find out who's gonna win the game. So what we do is uh, like we got it from a penalty kick in soccer. It's one of the most exciting plays. So we call it a show one-on-one -on -one. pitcher versus hitter. No one's in the field. The pitcher, the pitcher has to get the hitter out. So the hitter is hitting. If he drives the ball into the outfield, the pitcher has to get it, come up and throw the ball to the plate to the catcher to get him out. So the pitcher's trying to stop him. The hitter's trying to score. And so that in a nutshell is, is the main rules uh, that we've developed. And I'll tell you, it's, it's so much fun to watch. So you've created banana ball. And I don't know if you follow uh, cricket. And I've been aware. Already, but cricket, is it? Yeah. Cricket is huge, right? It's absolutely massive. And uh, the classic issues, really similar to baseball. Baseball's not big in New Zealand, but cricket is, is huge. Is you know, it takes too long. It's too slow, blah, 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 blah. And they came up with this um, uh, 2020. And cricket 2020 was basically 20, 20, inning, 20 overs each pop, one night, sort of one day, instead of like a seven-day marathon. And there's only 12 people out in the field and you've got the world's best. Exactly the same thing. They realized there was a... Um, huge issue around a, a lack, of, lack of engagement from the customers and just everyone dropping off. And they kind of, they took it head on with this, this 2020 concept, but it was controlled by the actual, you know, the players and the unions, whatever itself. Yeah. You're essentially creating your own sport, utilizing the baseball field, but you've got a, a new format that obviously you own, you run, you can sort of roll out and you almost become the, um, the the baseball 2.0 really right and the opportunity to do that but with fans first engagement and that could go year round everywhere that could go 100 percent globally because if you look at you know snowboard world was was the classic was in the northern hemisphere it's winter during your winter and then in your summer it's our winter and so we go down there and you follow the you essentially follow the seasons yeah is your headspace to try and make banana ball the new baseball globally for fun? Like how big is this thing? Cause in my head, I kind of see a bit of a blueprint and a pathway to where you can take it. You know, I, I guess I, I'm too naive and ignorant to even think, I, I think big, but I'm not thinking about necessarily what the footprint of banana ball is. I solely think about every game is someone's first game. How do we bring this to more people? And so literally we're focusing on what we can control. Um, yes. I'm inspired by Walt Disney and all those big thinkers, but Hey, we're going to take this to a new city this year. Then we're going to take it to another city the next year and keep taking it to more cities. And I think having that long-term thinking, um, if it starts resonating, like I think it's going to, then I think opportunities will open themselves up. Um, I don't know if you've heard the story about Nordstrom and how they grew. Have you heard that? No, no, no. We don't actually have Nordstrom in New Zealand, but go for it. All right. Well, you're familiar with the company, correct? Yep. Yep. So, yeah. So John Nordstrom, they started in Seattle, built this amazing retail store. People came from all over to see him because they were doing things dramatically different, better customer experience than anyone else, great products, et cetera. So 
when they were building, they were starting to build the malls of America all over the United States. Developers were on the highways building these malls. And they kept approaching Nordstrom and saying, hey, we'd love for you to have a Nordstrom at our new mall. And Nordstrom kept saying, no, not interested, not interested. Seattle's our place. And they kept saying, well, what would make it worth it? like, ah, you know, we're really not interested. And finally, the developer said, you know what? What if we give you a signing bonus? He goes, well, what do you have in mind? We'll pay you between 30 and $40 million to come to our mall. We'll have you uh, pay a $1 lease and we'll build everything for you. And Nordstrom said, I'll do it. And they went into that mall and they started getting those same contracts at malls all over the country. And those mall developers won because when they said they had Nordstrom, everyone else developed around that Nordstrom. And I'm fascinated by that story. It's on Masters of Scale. And it literally talks about how they built it. And my mindset is, what would it take for the Savannah Bananas to be so good at what we do that people come from all over and say, what would it take to bring you to our country, bring you to our city? And we get a situation where we can't lose. And that's something we're trying to think about the long game. Maybe we're going to have to build it ourselves to get there. hundred percent. Um, I, I was just the, the roadmap seems pretty simple to scale out because now with obviously content and the, the scalability of the way you've built content for uh, the communities and, and the way you're attacking, I guess the experience and the actual game itself. Um, it feels like a bit of a no brainer to where this is going to, this is going to go. And even, even just, you know, leveraging underutilized assets in the off season of others and if it works for you it's like sweet you know get up and go it's it's great so how do you um when you think when you strategize about the next thing because you've you've got a um you've got the people at play you've got the product of what you do and then there's this platform sort of piece at the bottom how do you split your time between um the people product and, and platform of what you're trying to build in on on a week-to-week basis obviously it must change in the on and off season but how do you navigate your time and energy across all these different facets in the business yeah i struggled with this at first i think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with where you do time and i think when you start realizing you're coming home or at the end of the day you're tired i think it, it's become a point to really re-examine your schedule and there was a point where i was doing that i was exhausted at the end of the day and i started looking at my calendar and i realized well i wasn't doing things that give me energy you know, me getting involved in the details and even numbers. I mean, I have no idea what's in our bank account right now. No idea, you know, and, 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 and going through all those details wore me out. I'm not a detail guy. I'm a big picture guy. And so I realized I started saying, well, what gives me energy? You know, everyone says, well, just do what you like to do. I said, no, reframe the question. What gives you energy? And I realized for me, I created my energy list. And for me, my energy list is sharing, creating and growing. Whenever I'm sharing, talking about what we're doing, just like this, this is giving me a ton of energy. Creating, whenever I'm coming up with new promotional ideas, coming up with new uh, attention getting ideas, new ideas for our concession stand, our, our tour, that fires me up. And then growing, I love to read, I love to listen to podcasts, I love to learn, uh, even just with you right here. This actually hits all three, sharing, creating, and growing. <laughs> so I'll spend my time being the one that's out here sharing what we're doing, spreading the word, and then talking to our people, sharing, creating, growing, inspiring them, while I have our team that is so focused on the next step. What's the next strategy? What's the next realm? And then I'll work with them. And that's really started to work well for us as far as maximizing our time and effort. Mm. And the balance off between those sort of threes within the professional side, personally, then how have you navigated your energy and momentum 
like in home life because obviously you know you wear the suit you get the hype rah rah now you got a two and a half year old at home you know wife you know I've got I've got three daughters under under two or two daughters under three sorry so I'm okay. like understanding how the, the prioritization of how that sort of works how are you prioritizing your 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 personal um, headspace and balance between personal and professional now great question uh, for me it's winning the morning uh, learn from Hal Elrod you win the morning you win the day um, fortunate I, you know I get up at four thirty five. Um, so every day, I, the first thing I do is I write a thank you letter. So I've been doing that since 2016, the thank you experiment. Uh, I've written thousands of thank you letters. Start there, then I write in my journal, then I read a book, uh, usually a chapter or two. Then I write 10 ideas every single day. So I do 10 new ideas. Uh, then I run and listen to a podcast. So by 6.30, 7 o'clock, by the time I get Maverick, um, you know, I, I've already won the day. And so that gives me a really good free of headspace for the next hour and a half before taking him to daycare, uh, to school, I'm in a good spot. So. That helps me. I think a lot of times when we wake up as creators, we have so much we want to do so much. And then all of a sudden it's immediately disrupted. And then we're like, oh, I didn't get that done. And we're frustrated. I try to get it all out. And then I will be able to the rest of the day create on my own, on my own pace. Do you, um, you obviously probably similar to my, myself, you're an ideas guy who's got ideas. How do you document your thoughts to keep your ego? How do you document your thoughts, uh, in the middle of the night and stuff, do you uh, have your phone next to you? Do you write your stuff down? Like what's your actual process of dissecting the carnage that what exists in here onto, onto piece of paper to sort of get it out? What's your workflow in terms of ideation? Great question. And I'd love to hear yours as well. But the uh, uh, for me, uh, no phone in the bedroom. That's huge. I've been really right. a proponent of that. Uh, so I keep the phone out in the dining room um, and I don't check it first thing. I really, eight o'clock, or once I do my podcast is the first time I'll, I'll turn on the phone. But um, yeah, I do have notebooks everywhere. Um, my idea book is big. And then whenever in the middle of the day, I have Evernote, obviously, on my phone that I'm constantly going to because I am scared of losing. I tell my wife, if anything happens to me, go through my Evernote. There's probably a few things that can help us for a few years after this. Uh, what, what's yours? Um, I had a, uh, I have a small, I might have a hiccup. A $20 voice recorder, which I has a little side switch and it just sits to the um, next to the bed. And so I'll get up and I literally just, I can feel it, click it, say whatever, back down. And then in the morning I wake up and there's all these things. I'm like, oh, whoa, no shit. That, that, that. Like, that's interesting. And and it happens because I do it so just consciously and then pray similar to yourself. And then I've got my um, uh, notebook. But this, I got a... Uh, a Moleskool notebook that has the uh, laser pen pointer, which um, basically turns it from analog into digital and digitizes it into Evernote. Mm. Um, so, which is really interesting because then it, you can timestamp what you wrote when on each different page. Um, it, you can um, switch it from analog to digital. So it basically converts all of your writing into uh, text online and then you can email it to yourself or to others as well so if you're in a meeting instead of like i've been in meetings you know someone's gotten like an ipad out writing notes and it feels kind of Icky. uh yeah it, it doesn't feel like sort of genuine connection when you're like kick, 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 opposed to if you're in a meeting and, it's, and you've got a pen and a paper it feels more organic for the relationship and so that's something that i've um notice has made a, a huge difference because it's not um it's more weirdly enough it feels more personal like you're doing it with intent for that moment instead of let me have my phone tap 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 or just something that just kind of yeah so i've been but i've been really interested in um the processes of others to do it 
Well, you know, it's proven that we're our most creative when we first wake up, whether that's from a nap, whether it's because of the alpha waves. And, you know, Keith Richards wrote this song, Can't Get No Satisfaction, right after a drunken stupor. He woke up and I think it talks about this in the book Friction by Jeff Rosenblum. Yet often so many people go to their phone first and they're looking at other people's priorities. They're consuming before they create. And so, what you know, when you first get up, you're almost your most creative. That and when you're in, in with water and showers and stuff. So like that maximize those times. If you maximize those 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you'll be more creative than people are an entire day as opposed to going to the phone. So that's really helped me over the last few years. Well, going back to the social dilemma, but the, I've always talked about, I'd rather um, create over consume. And I've had this thing of, you know, if I'm using my phone, if I'm using my phone to create instead of sitting there like a blur and you being the product for someone else's and data for someone else's thing, I'd rather be a, the creator similar to yourself. So, you know, when you're talking about, you know, you're sharing, you're creating and you're growing, I can definitely re relate to that because if I'm, if I'm creating and doing, it feels like I've got momentum that I'm building for myself proactively instead of almost being kind of reactive to other people's wants and needs or energy or attention or, you know, because if you just enable any of that outside noise to come into yours, it sort of takes away your eyeballs to be able to consume the stuff that actually is important and you kind of get sucked into a vortex of other people's energy and attention and blah, blah, blah. So I, I can totally agree with that. Um, yeah, it's really interesting just other, especially just talking with other creators and, and business crew, these sort of processes of what they do to, to keep that balance and to kind of break down some of those processes. But I'm always really intrigued with, um, especially just the ideas book because it's clear everyone or the majority of people clearly use that. Yeah. So, I'll maybe go go here for a sec before we wrap up is asking around the the effect of COVID in the world of sport. Um, timing wise, how bad did it screw you and the rest of the sport? And do you think do you think sport will forever be potentially changed after this? And how so? Yeah, and I, I think um, the mindset of screw screw us. I, I don't think we ever took that mindset. Um, I think hmm. we took the mindset of. Uh, all right, what does this now give us the opportunity to do? And for us, uh, yeah, I mean, it happened right before our season. Um, you know, we went from revenue to zero revenue. I mean, it, it, it hurts. Um, but what it gave us the opportunity to say, you know what? We're going to play. We're going to find a way um, and the right way of doing it. We did. Um, but also, what other rules can we break this year? Because there's no rules. And not rules in safety, rules as far as creativity. And so what we did, which we never would have done before, is we questioned the way the game was watched. If we had to turn away 50,000 fans who couldn't come anymore, could we now show the game on a streaming platform in a different way that's ever been done before? And so we got together as a group and said, all right, guys, let's question everything about streaming a game. What's the normal way of doing it? What would be the complete opposite or outrageous or remarkable way of doing it? So we said, well, could we have drones going during games, which you've never done. And I remember the first game we did, our umpires were like, they ran off the field. They're like, are we being attacked? I'm like, guys, no, we're just filming the game. Like, we're okay. And uh, they're like, well, what if the ball hits the drone? I'm going, don't ask. We'll figure it out. What do you want? Dead ball. All right. Whatever. We'll make it up. But we started questioning. We could we put mics on players? Could we let fans vote for who was going to pitch and who was going to hit in the game? Could we show camera angles different than we've ever shown before? And we tested. And the first night, the audio was a disaster. The guy's running with the mics. It was, like, it was bad. The drone, the first night, it went in the wrong direction. It was didn't cover the ball. It covered the opposite way. But by the second game, the third game, the fourth game, the fifth game, all of a sudden people were like, this is a different way than we've ever seen the game. So we were able to break the rules by trying new things we never tried before. We invented our own team, the party animals that we played against. We started 
doing banana ball. We started doing all this. So it was the best thing that could ever happen to us. Was our revenue the same? No, we took a seven figure hit. When you get rid of half of your attendance, it hurts. But we're gonna win so much faster because of it. And I think everyone on our team would say, wow, we are so glad that this happened. Not from, you know, just internally because that made us flex our creativity even faster. Well, it becomes that thing of offense versus defense. You know, everyone goes to pull back and what can we do? And you're like, no, no, giddy up and go. And especially that mindset of taking it into sport. Um, Jesse, I've really, really appreciated the chat and the insight around this. If people want to um, check you out, support, buy some merch, read the book, buy a tuxedo, where can they go to? What can they do, my friend? I think uh, that company, brightcoloredtuxedos.com, I don't even know if they're in business anymore. They're not selling yellow tuxedos. I might have been the only returning customer. So I wouldn't go that route. Uh, just savannahbananas.com. You know, I, I learned a great lesson from Mark Cuban when I was 25 years old. I read his book and wrote him an email. And he wrote back within an hour. And I was blown away, Mark Cuban. And uh, same thing. Uh, I post almost every day on LinkedIn, um, posting content. That's how we connected. Uh, so if there's any questions or anyone can help, reach out. But I think uh, the greatest entrepreneurs are always looking to help people. And I, I hope I can be that same person. It's pretty incredible, man. And um, yeah, amazing to see what the 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 value that you've brought by focusing on the experience of all and then obviously baseball comes along with it but it's pretty clear the direction of where this thing is heading just with that mindset to keep creating and keep going and doing things differently and i love that idea about you know however it's been done stuff that we're doing the opposite and i think any kind of great entrepreneur or, or, or thought leaders or whatever they always you know they're leading the pack because they're innovating, doing stuff what other people don't do. And by them to have the bravery to go and try those things first, that's actually what makes um, innovation sort of come into existence anyway. So uh, best of luck, Jesse. Really appreciate your time. And I know you're a busy man, but um, one day, man, I, I feel like I want to try and cut. When this whole pandemic's over, I might have to come out to Georgia and see the action. This could be uh, great. Maybe we'll let you, like to throw out the first banana. All right, start off the game oh, with the banana. We'll see. <laughs> There you go. Hey, uh, thanks, for, thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jesse, and best of luck for you and the Savannah Bananas. Appreciate you. Take care. See you, bro. Bye. There you have it. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesse Cole, Savannah Bananas, unreal, awesome, good chat and banter. Uh, this has been Rebet Live, uh, Dash Talk Radio, Dash Talk X, Dash Radio. Enjoy the day, day team. Be good. Be great. Adios.